five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. My guest this week is Laura Fossick, a planetary scientist turned space consultant and now also an author on space topics. We talk about a variety of subjects in space, including what is currently going on in space tourism, which is obviously quite a bit. As always, feel free to email us your questions or comments on the episode at spacebusinesspodcast.gmail.com or post them on our Twitter, which is podcast underscore space. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast app. Now, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, then please enjoy my conversation with Laura. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Hey everybody, I'm here today with Laura Forsyth. Laura, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. And, you know, it's so timely to have you on because I know that you're doing so many things in space and for the space community, but I do know you're also very interested in space tourism. So I just got to ask you that news a few days ago from the auction of the first seat on the Blue Origin suborbital uh, vehicle, $28 million winning bid. What, what did you think? That was surprising to me and to many people because you can almost get to orbit with that much money, not quite, but double it. And you can certainly get to the International Space Station. And, and as it is, $128 million is approximately what was paid for those first International Space Station trips through Space Adventures. I don't know what it is adjusted for inflation, but uh, yeah, that's a lot of money for a quick 11-minute suborbital flight. Well, Laura, I thought so too. I thought the same things. I mean, you mentioned the Space Adventure trips, so like the ones that happened between 2002 and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, 2011. And yeah, those guys paid like between 20 and $30 million. We actually did not have a lot of inflation. Like, well, it's coming up again now, but during those years. And, and now Axiom, I think, is at $55 million for, for a 10-day trip to the ISS. And that's not even the only option, right? Because Space Adventures is, is coming back into the game as well, aren't they, with Roscosmos? That's right. Yeah. So Space Adventures has never really truly left. They've been looking for customers, but now they have another right. one. Um, so yeah, I think it probably was a factor that this is the first one that yeah. Blue Origin is hosting and Jeff Bezos is going to be on the flight. I can't imagine this would have gone as high as it did, $28 million, if it wasn't for the fact that one of the wealthiest men in the world is also going to be a crewmate on the flight. Oh yeah, you got you to gotta, you gotta think that, right? This is like similar, you know, these... This charity auction, Warren Buffett, one of the other wealthiest people does um, every year, like inviting somebody to, la to lunch and they have to bid on it. And people like regularly pay $5 million plus for that. So I think that's definitely part of the, the $28 million. If it had been some, you know, I don't know, some other Blue Origin employee, nothing against them, they probably wouldn't have reached the same, the same price. But let me ask you, do you think this is 
do you think this is good or bad or does this have any impact that this price was higher than many people, including myself, expected? I think this is great data for especially Blue Origin, but also any company that's trying to set prices either you know, to suborbit or to orbit or on a near space uh, balloon trip or wherever they um, are offering. This is really great information about how much the market is willing to pay and what number of customers out there are willing to, to at least bid on it. I don't know how many customers were bidding like $1, $10 versus, you know, right. in the millions. Um, but Blue Origin certainly knows. And they also know not only what the, the max was, but they know the median and the mode. And so that'll help them adjust their prices once they start selling tickets to New Shepard, which I'd imagine they'd start doing very soon. Um, and then once Blue Origin sets their new price, I think Virgin yeah. Galactic will, will up their price as well. So this is all very valuable information about what the market is willing to pay for these flights. This is very interesting. Those numbers you mentioned, like mean, median, is that have they published that anywhere? Do we know? No, that? no, and I doubt they will. Okay. <laughs> I think yeah, that's yeah, that's very valuable. That's very valuable <laughs> competitive. I mean, we'd love to know, right? But it's obviously valuable marketing. That could be somebody's dissertation right there about how many wealthy people are in the world and what the median wealth is, and, and yeah. how many are interested in, in going to space, and how many bid for this flight, how much money, and it'd be very interesting. But oh, I'm just, sure Origin is keeping that secret. Absolutely, just projecting sort of how many people would be willing to pay what price, and like, okay, X hundred people pay, you know, twenty five million. And then another uh, X people pay 10 million and so forth. <laughs> and you're so right about Jeff Bezos. There's probably somebody at Blue Origin now thinking like, hmm, should we try to convince Jeff to be on more flights so we can, <laughs> we can charge him more? And correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just off a, a stepped off a plane, but I don't think they've published the name of the individual yet either, right? Not according to this uh, timing of this recording. They haven't published the name of the winner and they haven't published the fourth flyer either, um, which from what I've right. heard, will be a Blue Origin employee, but we have not had confirmation yet. This will be a nice sort of like employee of the month for employee of the year perk. <laughs> I'm so curious to know because it, it's an interesting contrast, right? You have the ultra wealthy on this flight, but you also have, it could be a very normal-ish person, right? As somebody yeah. who never expected to fly or maybe someone who's been working in the space sector their whole career and um, has been wanting to fly but couldn't afford a, a multi-million dollar seat. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, in, in, in fairness, like you said, at the time of this recording, like we don't know who the individual is. And we're also making the assumption, I guess, you and I, and probably most people, that whoever is paying this is flying themselves, right? But in theory, it could also be some individual who says, hey, I'm going to have $28 million and I'm going to sponsor somebody who I think you know should go up there, which would be like a really interesting sort of... Uh... That is a really good point because we've seen that. We've seen um, people, for example, the SpaceX uh, Inspiration4 mission, there was a random drawing. And so it wasn't someone who paid $28 million, but it was someone who donated to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And yeah. I don't know how much they they donated to to win. I myself donated, but that person won mm -hmm. and they decided they didn't want to fly. So they handed that winning ticket off to their friend. Uh, so uh, you never know who is sponsoring mm -hmm. something and who's willing to sponsor an entire uh, SpaceX a Starship mission around the moon, for example, with the Dear Moon Project and take on several different people who um, didn't pay for it. It's, it's an interesting um, trend we're seeing where the wealthy are not only sponsoring themselves, but, but bringing people along. No, no absolutely. And, and what do you actually, I mean, you mentioned Dear Moon. So this is sort of the, um, let's call it like the crown discipline of space tourism for the moment anyway, right? Just um, for the people who don't know, Dear Moon is basically a, a planned mission on the SpaceX Starship to do a circumlunar flight, right? So it's uh, it's basically an Apollo, Apollo 8 type mission, the way I understand it. And a Japanese billionaire who made his money with... Um, 
e-commerce, Yusako Maizawa paid, well, he paid it's yet another undisclosed price. Um, but yes. we, can, we can triangulate from a few things Elon said and a few other things that it's going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars that, that he paid. And he, I think his original plan was to take along basically a number of artists. Is that, is that still the plan? actually? He's calling them creatives now. And he okay. had a contest going on. And I don't know the criteria for the people who are selected to be, um, you know, the finalists for this contest. I was not selected, but um, I assume it's people who are um, high profile creatives in one way or another. You applied to? I did. Did uh, you? Well, I did not. I kind of forgot about it. There's all of these, you know, there's like all of these opportunities coming up. It's great now, actually, right? There's now several opportunities to basically enter contests or some sort of selection processes, I should say, right? To go to space um, because you probably know um, here in Europe uh, on the professional astronaut side, ASA opened up basically uh, for another professional astronaut selection. Um, so that's obviously different from space tourism, um, though an interesting angle there is that for the first time ever, they're going to have a, what they call an astronaut reserve where people can actually continue working in their jobs and they may just be called at some point in time to, to fly. And then um, another thing, I guess, that sort of fits into our conversation is the entertainment projects, right? What was, I think the Discovery Channel announced a uh, the plan for a reality TV show where somebody would be chosen to fly, right? That's right. And that's along with a TV uh, concept called Space Hero, yes. which is another one that's uh, trying to select one to fly. And there's been other concepts like this. And yes. none of them have actually flown to date. Um, but the exciting thing about the Discovery one you mentioned is that that is actually a distributor. So Discovery Channel is putting their, their yeah. money behind it and will air it. Um, Whereas I don't believe the other ones actually had distributors. So I don't know, for example, Space Heroes um, has the backing yet to, to know if they could proceed. But it'll be interesting to see how these companies then decide that entertainment is worth spending the money to invest in space tourism and send up a random person that wins a, a TV series. I'll, I'll be very curious. I mean, I do believe space entertainment is is going to be a thing because I mean, there's, um, there's just so much fascination the average person has with space. Right. And, and look at just how many people are watching just like, you know, uh, SpaceX launches that are just putting up satellites, right. And not even, not even people. And then of course, going back to the Apollo days, how many people were watching that, even though we had much, much smaller TV audience, but you're right. Um, I know the guys at space hero as well. I think they are, I think they're looking for a distributor. And then as you sort of imply, there's a few, few projects, similar projects in stealth mode as well. And, but it, it seems like something is going to happen and uh, the same question to you again do you think this is this is good or bad or neutral or what do you think the impact is going to be on the on the space sector i think it's exciting i think there's a lot of possibilities and we're just going to have to see how it all diversifies because i like to think of space not as one single industry but as mm. uh, just a place where you can yes. have endless possibilities and and i think i'm coming as a scientist here that i understand the mindset that the international space station is a scientific laboratory and therefore people look down upon the entertainment industry um, or advertising on the ISS. However, I find it fascinating that you can do both and that um, the people that are sent up there, for example, the, the rich people who went up with space adventures and the people who are planning to go up with Axiom Space and others, they're not just going up for a joyride. They're also mm -hmm. going to go up for science and, and, and um, outreach, public outreach. And so I think that there's a great way 
to do a TV series like the Discovery Channel or Space Heroes and also inform the general public about what space travel is and, and that they too can be astronauts and all the great things that happen with microgravity. In a way, like I find it really interesting the way that you can combine entertainment and education in this kind of aspect. And there's there's endless possibilities, reality TV show or, you know, maybe a normal sitcom, a drama. Who knows what's going to happen with commercial space stations in the future and how they're going to be set up for filming and entertainment. Yeah, you make a really interesting point there. It's like almost, it's almost good that these like first... Um, well, they're not the first, as we said, I guess, but that this, this, for, for this new generation of space tourists, the first ones that are going up now, there's so much spotlight on them, right? That I guess they almost have to do something interesting because if they're like, you know, they're very wealthy people anyway, they're probably most of them are billionaires and then certain people have certain opinions on billionaires. And if they just went up there and like literally did nothing but hanging out, it wouldn't look very good. So it's probably good that it's sort of a implied pressure to, you know, to engage in science or to do art. And, and like you said, this has happened before, right? I remember Richard Garriott went up there in I think 2008-9 and then he was doing art and a few other things and and so you can have these these very interesting side effects um how about how about Tom Cruise <laughs> yeah so Tom Cruise was rumored last year I believe yeah. to go up and yeah. film a movie and it was actually confirmed by the then then NASA administrator Jen Bridenstein uh, but we haven't heard any confirmation since and I think that spurred a little bit of a contest between NASA and Roscosmos the yes. Russian space agency yes. and so now Russia decided that they're going to beat uh, NASA or the United States in um, filming a movie, a major movie, I should say, in space, because Richard Garriott, as you just mentioned, he was up there and he actually filmed a little amateur movie. You can mm -hmm. find it online. It's called Apogee okay. of Fear. So it's very short. <laughs> But a major motion picture has not been done up in space yet. And so Roscosmos actually chose out of a contest um, an actress that they're going to fly up there. And they have a, a film director that's going to fly up there as well. So that'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Because again, the ISS is a laboratory, not a film studio. So it'll be very interesting to see how the creative direction goes. And I don't know anything about movie making, but I imagine they're mm -hmm. going to take full advantage of the microgravity situation up there. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what, I guess, a large part of what makes it interesting, right? The microgravity situation. And and yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a funny environment for filmmaking, right? Because obviously, usually you would have a lot of space in Hollywood studios and uh, the ISS is not exactly very, very roomy uh, in terms of in terms of volume. I think when I was speaking to the Space Hero guys, they said something like they would basically uh, just place cameras everywhere, sort of like in the Big Brother house. It's not like there would be like cameramen, like, you know, walking around between the astronauts, which I guess does make some sort of some sort of sense. Um, I could imagine that to be the future though, right? You you have all kinds of futures where um, we could do those kinds of films, the major motion films, or you could yeah. do, um, you know, documentaries. And in, in future space stations, it might be roomier. They might be inflatable space stations that don't have as many of the, the consoles that are needed for space station. And therefore you can imagine a future where we're actually doing a lot more filming on location in space. Yes. Well, I mean, really, no, that's a, that's a great point. And I mean, the really interesting thought here is that if that ends up actually being one of the drivers so i don't know about you but you know sometimes i get these questions and, and we engage in these like you know um sort of like thought exercises of you know going beyond the earth orbit beyond the iss to like let's say the moon and um, there's always a lot of people excited about the moon for you know for good reasons but whenever we talk about the moon in a business context you know and sort of my main role as a space venture investor you always hit against the same problem which is basically like okay but you know after you the, that big nasa contract you got is up and those missions are, are done like, how do you actually build a 
how do you build a sustainable business on the moon? Like what is actually the business on the moon? Like it's kind of unclear. Some people will say like, okay, space resources, you know, like getting the water eyes and things like that. But, but then another thought is, well, maybe it's entertainment. Maybe the first thing we could do on the moon is, is some sort of entertainment. It'll be very interesting to see how that evolves. And that is still decades away. I'm sure that NASA will land there very soon with people. But um, in terms of the commercial sector, being able to do something independent of a government contract is quite a ways away, I believe. Um, maybe in terms of refueling. And that's maybe the, the very first thing that a commercial company can do is mine water from the moon and get to a, um, uh, make it, may turn it into propulsion and then resell it to another company. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see just how we've seen the low Earth orbit or actually Earth orbit in general kind of turn from a domain of government use to now so many different industries in the commercial sector. I think the same thing will be applied to cislunar space and then eventually the lunar surface of how industry will learn how to make use of this new domain and, and what to do with these new resources. It'll just take a lot of time. You mentioned an interesting topic there which is the timelines um and there's all sorts of timelines different people have right uh, sort of like the nasa slash government timeline for Artemis and other things there's you know what we uh, affectionately call the elon the elon timelines <laughs> what do people have right what do they have wrong in terms of like the big projects and the timelines uh, so most of the time everybody has the timeline wrong and that they're too optimistic <laughs> And, and you can see this throughout space history. You can look back in the uh, right, right as we landed the first people on the moon during the Apollo 11, um, the, those same articles were mentioning in the next breath, they're going to land people on Mars in the next X number of years, right? And that hasn't happened yet. So optimism right there. Um, and that's over-optimism in the sense that they're going to have the funding and that the technologies yes. work out. I do believe eventually we'll get people to, them, to Mars and that has been the plan all along, right? But um, this kind of thing is extremely expensive. And then you get the people who think, well, new technology, for example, SpaceX is building the Starship and, and maybe that new technology will make it affordable for mass transportation to Mars. And that is the plan, right? But the mm -hmm. technology is always more complex than, than initially believed. And you can see space and how they've been delayed over the years and years. And you can see that with other companies and, um, you know, uh, other timelines as well. And so every single, whether it's a, a company like SpaceX or whether it's NASA or, or other government agencies, they are always overly optimistic. It's actually pretty rare to see anybody come in on time or even, you know, early or, and under budget. And so the complex situation there is how do you get the funding? Because the funding mm. is, is mostly the control of how yes. fast you can go, right? Um, there's the technological delays, of course, but the funding has always been that driver. We didn't continue going to the moon during the Apollo program because of the funding, because the mission had been accomplished here in the United States to mm -hmm. beat the Russians to the moon. And therefore there was no political reason to keep funding NASA to do so. And NASA wanted to, or I should say the government wanted to switch gears and do um, space station freedom and that kind of thing. So that kind of political motivation or in, in current terms today, uh, investor motivation to invest a really large amount of money for an uncertain future or technological difficulties that will going to, you know, increase the budget even more once you've already poured a lot of money into it. It's very fascinating to see how some companies react and some don't. Some companies very much stick under government contracts and some companies can, you know, can either afford to spend their own money if they're backed by a billionaire yeah. or go ahead and 
um, get investor money any way they can. Um, and, and lots of different rounds of fundraising and that yes. kind of thing. So it's fascinating in different philosophies that are happening right now. So, but if I take that, what you said, and I agree with it. So the, the one time we had a major space project on time was, uh, basically that we fulfilled Kennedy's vision of landing on the moon before the end of the decade. Right. And which is because we basically for all purposes had un unlimited funding, but shouldn't that make us very optimistic? Because, um, I mean, you've been in the space industry longer than me, but this should be a very good moment, right? Because I mean, look at how much funding is available. I mean, Jeff Bezos basically decided to put a good part of his, you know, personal fortune into, into blue origin, uh, you know, a few billion every year. Um, Elon is, I mean, I guess implicitly kind of putting some of his own money, but even more importantly, he's just able to raise so much money. I think just year to date, SpaceX has just raised another $3 billion or so again. And then even beyond blue origin and SpaceX, I mean, there's just so much money being raised. Like, uh, what's the last big round? Relativity just raised $650 million in one go. And then you have all of these SPAC activities, right? Which each SPAC basically injects a few hundred million dollars into a space company. So shouldn't make this, shouldn't that make us optimistic on the timelines? Well, you just mentioned Jeff Bezos. I think that's a really great example to answer your question here. So he has pretty much unlimited money, right? He has yeah. something close to $200 million as of right now. Um, he could pour his billions into Blue Origin, but he does not. He actually pours very little money. He, it's a lot of money compared to you and me and how much we're worth, but compared to how much he's worth, it's actually not a lot of money that he pours in. And you've seen Blue Origin and their motto is you know, to go very, 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 very slow. Yes. And so um, is it optimistic to think that if you have unlimited money, you can go very fast? I think it is because it depends on your motivations. NASA wanted to beat the Soviet Union in the space race and, and whether that was going, you know, sending the first person to space, they didn't beat them there, but sending a first person to the moon, they certainly did. And therefore it was a race. Blue Origin has some ways to, to think of it as a race and they're trying to get people to suborbital space. Um, they're trying to get people to um, orbit in New Glenn. They're trying to eventually mm -hmm. have orbital space stations at a um, Gerard K. O'Neill kind of concept yep, of yep. alien spheres, but they're going so slowly despite all the wealth that Jeff Bezos has. And so I think it has more to do with the motivations of the company. And also remember that you can't just be backed by one source. Um, so what happens if Jeff Bezos today um, dies, which would be very unfortunate for um, for Blue Origin and then for their current <laughs> people. But well, if they, today yeah. they die, then their funding source, their major funding source is cut off. They do have contracts with NASA. They've got contracts with the Department of Defense. Um, but you, know, you can't just rely on one funding source either, um, whether it's government, because government is fixed or whether it's a billionaire because billionaires are finite lifetimes or have finite wealth if Jeff Bezos goes bankrupt tomorrow, which is also unlikely, but you never know. So I, I think that it has more to do with the motivations of the company or the institution that's moving forward than it does about the endless, supposed endless amount of wealth that one has. Yeah, I really, I mean, I would expect if Jeff Bezos died that there's probably some provision in his will that a good part of the money goes. Um, I would expect him to go give some money to like sustainability courses, which he's already doing and then some good part to the space project. I'd be surprised. You'd think so, right? That but the um, there's a company out there called Strato Launch, and I know this isn't live, so I'm going to go look up who. <laughs> do you remember who? Uh, um, oh, the, the owner, Paul Allen. Paul Allen, thank you. Yeah. So there's yeah. a company out there called Strato Launch that was yeah. um, founded by a billionaire, Paul Allen, yeah. and Paul Allen passed away. And as far as we know, did not leave enough money for Strato Launch's mission. And so Strato Launch actually had to go into hiatus for a little while until they were, um, you know, re-established under a different direction. So you just don't know how these billionaires are planning for their, their futures beyond themselves. All right. Okay. To all of the space interested billionaires listening, remember to put the space projects in your wheels, please. We want your projects <laughs> to continue. <laughs>
Okay, um, that's interesting. So, um, Laura, we actually haven't talked about your background yet, and we should briefly do that. So why don't you give us a couple of minutes on actually how you got into the space industry and what you've been doing? Of course, yes. So my background, as I mentioned previously, I'm a scientist by training. Astrophysics and planetary science are my degrees. And um, I started out wanting to just be a NASA scientist, and then I got really into the space industry. I um, started out with a, a organization that works with NASA to bring scientific payloads to the International Space Station, which opened me up to not just the um, pure research payloads, but also the R&D projects that certain companies are involved with and the different companies that are already operating on space stations, such as NanoRacks and uh, Made in Space, Redwire, you know, those kind of companies that are doing fantastic things to try to commercialize space station. And then yeah. from there, I got picked up by a small startup that was trying to do point-to-point transportation in suborbital space. So the idea is that you take your spacecraft and instead of just using it to go to space, you yes. actually carry people around the planet. And so they had uh, plans to do operations around the globe and I was going to help them with their um, North American operations. But unfortunately, as startups go, they went bankrupt. <laughs> and so Which that one was that? Was, Which that was with space systems. They had a quite a shady background that I didn't uh, realize until after the fact with their CEO, um, a lot of mismanaged money there. Um, and so unfortunately, their plans for point-to-point transportation and also they had a small sat launcher concept didn't come to fruition. Um, okay. But it put me in the awkward position of clearing out the office at Kennedy Space Center a couple of weeks before I was to give birth to my first child. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I did not really want to look for a new job at that point. And I had already worked on the side as a space industry analyst for a company that doesn't quite exist anymore either. Uh, and so I thought, well, what if I start consulting? And so I became what I call an accidental entrepreneur and started mm-hmm. my company Astrolytical about five and a half years ago now, um, just trying to help out whoever came to me um, with space industry, space policy, and space science. And then added space career consulting as well when I realized there was high demand for people who wanted to enter the space industry but didn't know how. Mm-hmm. And so I work with governments both in the United States and elsewhere. I work with commercial companies, both uh, large established ones and startups and universities and individuals and even sci-fi consulting as well. Just any <laughs> number of things that interest me. And that's the beauty of running my own company is whatever interests me, I can go ahead and take on as well as deciding that I wanted to write a book. And so last year, I published my first book, Rise of the Space Age Millennials, looking at how the millennial generation, with which I'm an older millennial, and how the millennials mm-hmm. see space and how they were inspired to enter space and how they prefer to work in the workforce and where they want to see the space sector go. And I'm actually um, about to publish an update with the next generation, Generation Z, which are currently yeah. the older ones in college right now and then younger. Um, and then I'm also working on a book right now on exactly what we were just talking about, space tourism and private space flight, where I've interviewed both flown astronauts and future flyers on some of the surprises in space flight that the flown astronauts weren't prepared for. And then some of the things that the future flyers are doing to prepare themselves. And I'm really excited to put that book out there, hopefully early next year. Okay, that's that's great. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I've, I'm of a strong belief, you know, we we need to take the space message out to more people and the more books, the more books, the better. And what, what made you decide to write a book on, on space tourism? Oh, so I've always been fascinated with space tourism, but I found that there wasn't a lot out there of how mm. normal people can prepare. Um, there's a little bit out there, but it's more to do with um, training and analogs, which are very important concepts to understand. But I wanted to dive more into the things that weren't talked about and also dive into the diversity. So I made sure to get interviewees from all over the world, all different kinds of backgrounds and genders. And in, more importantly, in my opinion, government representation and commercial representation. 
presentation to try to get a wide variety of people that the readers can understand come from all different places. And even the private ones that I, I've interviewed. So I've interviewed people who are going to fly up on Virgin, who are going to fly on Axiom Space, who are going to fly on Inspiration4 later yeah. this year. Um, and some of the people I've interviewed are, are not just the tourists, but the researchers. I myself am a researcher and I found it really important to show people that it's there's really great science that can be done in space as well mm -hmm. and really great benefits to flying scientists up there. And, and so I really wanted to increase the understanding within the space sector, but also outside the space sector to let people know that there's these opportunities they may not have realized. In, in that book, I mean, without giving too many spoilers, because, you know, people usually just buy the book when it comes out, but have there been any sort of interesting um, conclusions in terms of, you know, for example, the motivations? Like, did you ask people why they go up there? Why they want to do that? Yes, yeah, so that was one of the main questions that I asked. And, and most of them had just this dream ever since they were children, right? I'm sure you and I have that similar, you said you don't come from a space background, but at least I have that dream ever since I was a kid. But then um, at least one person I interviewed actually did not have a space background. It was one of the inspiration for her, uh, crew members. She was chosen as a representative of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Mm -hmm. And she mm -hmm. didn't know in, that she would be flying in space until she was chosen. And so um, it's just fascinating to see why, why she chose this mission, despite the fact that she decided that she did not, uh, you know, she didn't have this like dream since childhood, but she wanted to inspire the people who went through what she did, which she went through bone cancer. This is um, Harley mm -hmm. Ark now. And she went through um, bone cancer as a child. And so by going to space, she wants to let other people who, especially other children who are going through difficult situations such as childhood cancer, to know that they too could become an astronaut someday, which I think is a really, really important message to, to showcase. Um, because it's not just people like me who have wanted to fly since I was a kid. It's people who also think it's really important to show that anybody can do these extraordinary things that they both get the opportunity and put their mind to it and say yes. No, that's that's a powerful message. That's that's really great. So I guess you answered my next question because I was going to ask you whether, whether you, Laura, want to get, would like to go yourself too. Absolutely. So I can trace my origins back to third grade, which probably earlier even, but in third grade, I wrote a story about wanting to go to the moon and what I would bring to the moon. And so as far back as that, I've always wanted to go to the moon. I could see myself, you know, my background is at least with planetary science side, um, lunar regolith. So I, mm. I, I played with the dust and dirt that we pretend is, is from the moon here on earth. And I find it fascinating that it's such an alien world. Um, so as a planetary scientist, I see the moon and Mars and all these other fantastic planets and uh, moons out there in our solar system and beyond as great places to explore the diversity of the universe. And so for me, Mars is a little bit far away for me. Mm -hmm. Moon's right there. And so for me, I'd love to go to the moon. Um, that's been my dream. But if anyone gives me the opportunity i will go to orbit i will go to suborbit <laughs> i don't go anywhere yeah no I'm, I'm i'm with you but funnily enough I, I can't really explain why but i'm also like fascinated with going to the moon i think because it's like you said it's like an alien world you're just not you're not just suspended well in quotes suspended somewhere on the iss in orbit but you are you are on like you know some other world which which just seems very fascinating so speaking of planetary science and, and 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 other bodies um how how about venus are you excited about that nasa is going back to venus venus is so cool not just nasa but isa as well and sure. maybe even yeah. Rocket Lab, which is a private company mm -hmm, run mm -hmm. by Peter Beck, who has a, just a personal fascination with Venus. So I think it's great that there's all these missions that are kind of being coordinated together with different purposes, but for the same destination. Um, so I believe that we need to go to all the, the solar system bodies <laughs> just right now. Um, and I myself am more interested in the places that potentially could have life. But Venus is fascinating because Venus was very much Earth-like in the past. At least that's what we believe right now. And so could, could Venus have had life? Well, probably not, but it's pretty cool to think that maybe we can find evidence to see where
where life could be formed in the solar system or in the universe, I should say, and where it couldn't, like what prevents life from being formed or what kills life if we could consider Mars, like Mars maybe had life and something killed it, right? So mm-hmm. all these different places and and we're sort of self-centered in that we, we are interested in life. At least I am. I'm not a geologist, but I a bit selfish in that I want to follow the life. Um, you know, other people maybe don't care, but I just find it fascinating. And so Venus is one of those places where it's called a hellhole, right? It's such a really different environment that is so hostile to life. And it teaches us a lot about how we need to treat our planet better. I think that's something that's lost a lot of the time when we're talking about space and somebody brings up the question of why do we spend money in space when there's all these problems on earth? Because space mm-hmm. can teach us how to better our own environment here on earth and how to um, be responsible citizens and stewards of our planet. Um, And learning how Venus went wrong and how it's become Mm -hmm. so hostile to life and the greenhouse effect and all of the Mm -hmm. things that um, you just make it such a terrible place for people. Maybe those kinds of lessons learned can be applied to making Earth a better place. One of those reasons why I want to get off planet, whether it's off planet on space stations or off planet on moon and Mars, and and it doesn't even matter to me. I just want to be able to, to create an environment where earth can be protected in a much better way than we protect it right now. And so whether that's learning from Venus, what not to do, or going to the moon and Mars so that we can spread the kinds of operations that we do off planet that maybe are harmful. Because if you're going to mine on the moon, for example, that's not really going to destroy the moon because there's no Mm -hmm. life on the moon, Mm -hmm. but mining on earth certainly destroys a lot of life. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that I want people to take away when they complain that we're wasting money in space when there's so many problems on earth. I think that Mm -hmm. it's very valuable to spend that money, you know, to, to learn about our, our universe so that we can protect the planet. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much with you. And it really is surprising. I don't know about you, but very often I, I get that argument from even from people who care a lot about sustainability and things like that here on Earth. They're asking exactly that question. Like, why do we spend all this money on space? And I was like, always the same answer. It's like, A, it's not even a lot of money that we're currently spending on space. And B, like you said, there's just so many benefits of space activity to Earth, right? And, and we haven't even touched upon the overview effect yet right yeah. which um i i assume you also probably consider interesting and and important an important reason to send a lot of people up there what'll be very interesting is to see if the overview effect and for those who aren't familiar that is a term coined by a man called frank white who wrote mm-hmm. a book called the overview effect as well as other books and it's the concept that astronauts who go up and see the earth from above see the curvature of the earth see the very thin layer of the atmosphere see the lack of borders the the geopolitical borders, um, they come away with a different perspective that really changes them throughout their lives, where they um, understand that they need to take very good care of our very fragile planet, that we're all one uh, planet, you know, one body of people on this one planet, and that the boundaries we have are artificial. So that's the idea of the overview effect. And it'll be curious to see once we get more and more and more people flying on suborbital flights, whether that extends and scales. You know, some people think that it will, and some people are more skeptical and think that it, it, it will be a fleeting thought, if anything. And I would love to, you know, be a personal trial there and volunteer myself to <laughs> fly too. up and see <laughs> if it affects me. Um, and what I think is very interesting is that everybody gets away something different, right? And the, the, what I just described is a summary, but everyone sees it differently. Some see it 
spiritually. Some people see it scientifically. Some people just see it as a, a warm feeling of humanity. And so it'll be curious to see once they have those perspectives, those new vantage points on how to see Earth, whether it is from suborbital space, orbital space, or leaving the planet to go to the moon, how they take away from that what they take away and how they act on that once they come back. Absolutely. And it's it's funny, I, I don't remember which one, but I think it's one of the Apollo astronauts. He, he also basically made the argument that, you know, we should get political leaders up there. He said something along the lines of, um, you know, you, you want to grab the politicians by the throat and drag them up to the moon <laughs> and tell them, like, look at this, you SOB, like, you know, the same same things you mentioned, right? There's no borders. We're all the same. This is our home and so forth. And um, I don't know. What do you think about that thought, kind of getting some, some political or spiritual or other leaders up there? Yeah, it's interesting because there have been, at least in the United States, some political leaders that have been sent up. So the current NASA administrator, Jim, uh, sorry, <laughs> that was the previous, the current one, yeah. uh, Bill Nelson, mm -hmm. he was a member of the House of Representatives and then a member of the Senate. And so he and so, yeah, uh, uh, John Glenn, and um, there have been several others. Um, there's, uh, oh shoot, what's the one I was just elected? Mark, no, oh no. Do you remember Mark? Oh, I mean, the, 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 the one of the brothers? Yes. Um, uh, I can't believe I can't believe we're both blanking on this. There's such prominent ones too. But they'll come to us in a couple of minutes. Of course. Right, I right. Yes. <laughs> then we'll forget. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> yeah, there, there have been several politicians that have flown to become astronauts and have been um, astronauts who have then run for office and become politicians. And there's too few to do a study of it. So I myself am a scientist and think, how many do you need for an accurate study? Right, sure. uh, But I think it'll be fascinating to see people who have positions of leadership, whether it's in politics or whether it is in religion, as you mentioned, or some other kinds of leadership positions and how that kind of uh, experience of space travel and the different perspectives of seeing the earth from above and seeing the stars and the heavens and, and all that, how that changes them. And uh, there's only been a little over 500 astronauts, or I should say people have flown in space uh, since the beginning of the space age. There's really not that many. And in terms of documenting how they felt afterwards, I don't think has been very well done, and especially not on some of the, the non-NASA side. I don't know if the perspectives of, for example, Russian and Soviet astronauts, if they um, had really good documentation on how they thought, especially under the Soviet regime, where things were a little bit more closed-lipped. Exactly. They certainly couldn't um, talk about their spirituality under the Soviet regime, that's for sure, right? And so now that we're going to get much more, at least the idea is that we're going to get much more numbers of people up there and more diversity of people up there. I think that it'll be great for sociologists and others to, to dive into some of this science and how the perspective of space changes humanity. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things on that. First, I have to say, um, you were talking about Mark Kelly, right? Yes. <laughs> it was working me. I had to like, I had to remember. So it was Mark <laughs> Kelly, U.S. Senator. But honestly, when I was thinking about it, so with all respect to like, you know, people like John Glenn and Mark Kelly, who are obviously, you know, important um, politicians. I was thinking on the scale of like, you know, we just had here, I'm in Switzerland. We just had um, basically shut down the city of Geneva because President Biden was uh, was meeting President Putin. And I was thinking like, maybe sometime in the future when we have these high level of summits between adversarial countries, maybe just be beneficial to do it in space because hopefully they maybe have the overview effect you never know maybe one day that they will have political meetings like those uh g7 and all the different types of meetings that they have around the world with with the um, world leaders maybe they'll have them in space someday maybe it'll be the opportunity to create some kind of space station specifically for international diplomacy and have a different perspective on the world you certainly at least i would hope that you aren't planning to um, drop bombs on a location that you are watching and seeing, you know, maybe an international border with your neighbor 
paper and, you know, you want to drop bombs on them, but then um, you see from above that they're right there with you. Um, so, I mean, I'm a bit of an idealist, so this probably isn't going to yeah. come to pass, but um, I can hope, I can very much hope that, you know, humanity might change our perspective if we are able to get ourselves um, above and beyond the planet. Yeah. Just for completeness, let's look at the other side of this though, which is what I mean by this is, um, uh, you know, we we're talking about, you were mentioning space race, right? And obviously you were sort of referring to the space race between the Soviet Union and the US in the, in the 50s and 60s. Um, arguably, we have a new space race now, which is between the US and, and China. And um, it, it's been very impressive and interesting, right? I mean, China basically, in a, what I perceive to be a relatively short amount of time, put up a new space station. Um, I think today or yesterday launched three astronauts to that space station. So, so for me, for me, that, that race is on. Do you see that as a positive or negative thing? Um, I mean, you because some people would argue that, the, of course, the there was a positive angle to the Soviet-US um, space race and that, you know, it really kind of provided this motivation you were talking about to, to move quicker. Right. So a race implies that there's two players, or at least two players, that are trying to do the same things in the same timeline yeah. and beat each other, which I don't think is the case here. There's certainly geopolitical competition between China and its allies and the United States and its allies. And we see that with um, the Artemis Accords, for example, that the United States is leading and trying to bring on um, additional signatories. There's, I think, 12 right now. And um, China and its partnership with Russia and its uh, additional partnerships that it's trying to bring on. And so you, you're quite correct that it's impressive how quickly China was able to create its new space station. It is now, it is their third space station. It is smaller than the International Space Station, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's still uh, going at a rapid pace there. But in general, China's space program is slow. It's slow and steady. And so they had um, an announcement made uh, just yesterday, I think, or two days ago, about um, how quickly they plan to move, for example, with their lunar base and mm -hmm. how the next decade is just going to be reconnaissance and preparation. And yet in the next decade, you can certainly expect to see NASA landing people on the moon. That mm -hmm. to me is not a space race. That to me is similar objectives, a different timeline though. Um, and so I can see for political reasons and especially happening here in the States, when you listen to the politicians talk and you listen to um, Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator talk about mm -hmm. how they need funding and why they need funding, he brings up China every time, um, both mm -hmm. the Chinese space station and the Chinese Mars lander, even though both of those things, as far as we know, are not militaristic. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> There is no separation, however, in China between their military and space program. It's all one and the same. Um, and so you definitely can see the fear. And, and there is some good reason for the United States to fear uh, growing China and especially growing China in space. But it, there's also good reason to be optimistic that maybe China can then be a scientific partner, especially when it comes to some of these things like Mars exploration and having rovers and being able mm -hmm. to um, share data that way or a lunar return, a, a lunar sample return and having the shared data of what to do with the moon rocks and sharing that kind of information about what they learn because the moon is not the same all, all around all around its globe it's mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. quite different and so i believe that there's really good opportunity to partner scientifically in the future if nasa is ever allowed to do so but even if nasa is not nasa and china share some of the same allies and so the scientific allies you know in europe and elsewhere um could then spread that science and so i i, I see both happening. I see both the competition and I see opportunities for optimism in terms of the science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, fingers crossed that there's going to be some interesting corporations um, in the future. Just changing tack a little bit, um, remember one of these other things you said about your, your own background and history, you mentioned something very interesting, which was the suborbital point-to-point -point flights. To, to me, as a frequent international traveler, this is like such a you know nice perspective that maybe at some point in time, and let's talk about timeline again as well, it would be possible to go you know from 
you know, Zurich to New York in like half an hour or something like that. Um, do you see that business coming back? I mean, it's, it seems like there is, I'm actually aware of several stealth projects in that regard. And then of course, SpaceX has teased that they ultimately would use the Starship as well for point-to-point -point flights. Do you see that business coming back in any sort of reasonable time frame? I think that some people are interested, or I should say some companies are interested in doing that, but it's not a high priority right now. I think that higher priority is, for example, with SpaceX, SpaceX has talked about wanting to do point-to-point point transportation. Virgin Galactic point, talked about point-to-point point transportation. Some other companies have as well. They all have different focus though. They all have different priorities. And point-to-point point transportation is not their highest priority, probably because it involves so many things put in place the right way. So you have to have the ability to launch people safely to space and land them to space, or I should say land them back on the ground safely. Um, and that is quite a feat. That has not been done yet, um, except by Virgin Galactic. Well, caveat, it doesn't have to be people, right? I mean, you could start with, That's with true. cargo flights. That's a very good point. So even taking cargo flights, right? There's only been two companies that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe there's others that have done cargo flights to suborbital space and back. And that's Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. And those have been scientific payloads and they've landed back in the same spot. Yeah. And so there's multiple things going on there. You have to have the ability to safely launch and land, whether it's people or not. Um, and then you also have to have the cooperation of the people running the range and the sure. um, regulations at the launch site and the people running the range and regulations at the landing site. And if it's different countries, then you have to have international yeah. cooperation and different ranges and different air regulations. And there's just a lot that goes into it as someone who's used to be my job to try to figure this out um, in terms of, you know, how do the different um, air spaces work together? Because it's not exactly like aviation. It's actually quite different from aviation. <laughs> and there's a lot that will have to happen in terms of safety and um, proven capabilities and also just um, rules and regulations put in place before that kind of uh, activity is finalized. So I believe it's lower priority for these companies right now because they have to have so many other things done before they can get that done. Um, but there is opportunity both in terms of commercial you know, or private individuals being willing to spend a very large amount of money to send themselves or cargo, very valuable, urgent cargo around the world in suborbital space. There's also a market for people, right? I mean, yeah. I myself would love to travel halfway around the world and not have to spend two days to recover and get there and recover, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there's a fantastic future for that. I just don't think it's now. I think it'll probably happen in the next few decades. Yeah. I mean, kind of, I think I agree with what you implied is I think one big reason, at least to flying people will be that it's going to take some time until agencies like the FAA are going to approve, you know, putting like whatever it is, a hundred people on top of a basically a starship and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, it strikes me as something that maybe, again, the first use case might be a military one there, where there's like fewer restrictions and possibly faster approval processes, just a perspective of, you know, moving military hardware, you know, basically um, within 30, 45 minutes worldwide is probably attractive to some people, I'm guessing. That is right now what's being talked about the most. And then you have other concerns, right? Because if a technology can be used for military purposes, then is a cooperating country going to want those same technologies to you know, so for example, let's say the military wants to work with a country, you know, around the world to, to land its military operations there. How willing will that country be then to cooperate in terms of the civilian program doing the same thing? So there's a lot that goes into that. And, and um, I don't know who, what's going to come first. I really don't know if it's going to be commercial uh, purposes or, or military purposes. Um, you know, military tends to clear the ground and put in um, different facilities or 
architecture or um, regulations that then the commercial sector takes advantage of when it comes to space. But that isn't always the case. Sometimes the military complicates things and that countries don't want to be involved in military operations, therefore don't want to be involved mm. in anything that could be dual use. So we're just going to have to see how it plays out. Yeah. Changing tack a little bit, um, let's talk a minute about your other book, The, the Space Age Millennials. And I guess as I gather now from your comments uh, a little while ago, the space age, um, generation Z, um, what is, what would be the, uh, let's say the, the cliff notes on, on those books, like, you know, an interesting tidbit. I wrote the large part of that book during the summer when we were globally celebrating uh, the 15th anniversary of the Apollo lunar landings. Mm. And there was a lot of nostalgia about how much Apollo inspired that generation. Mm -hmm. But millennials weren't alive for that. Millennials did not see any moon landings. We've only seen mm -hmm. um, orbital of spaceflight. And so it's one of those things where um, millennials may have been inspired by NASA and other government programs. But for the most part, the millennials that I spoke to I interviewed people around the world and I interviewed people who were scientists and engineers and also people who were business people and communicators and educators. So a wide variety of people. Most of them were not inspired by um, the traditional ways that people think of people being inspired by space like NASA or whatever. They, they were inspired mm -hmm. by SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and, mm -hmm. and some of these newer companies that came on board the past two decades that are doing groundbreaking things that had never been done before. And that's what got most people interested, at least most millennials, I should say, interested and not only got interested, but gave them the opportunities, especially people outside the United States in places that are not traditionally space hubs. They saw the rising commercial space industry as a way that they could get involved, despite their perspective, their, their individual countries not having a, a strong history in space. So being able to be involved in a commercial sector opens up opportunities globally for people to enter the space industry, whether they are, again, scientists or engineers or some other field that you wouldn't traditionally think of. Um, and then I also dive into some of the ways that millennials work with um, intergenerationally um, social media and um, being interconnected and how um, millennials, for the most part, and especially Generation Z, grew up in an age where we don't necessarily even know what time zone and what country the people we're speaking with are in. And mm -hmm. so we don't necessarily think in terms of nationalism. Nationalism here in the United States is still very much talked about in terms of the military space in program, in terms of politicians. But nationalism is not a main motivator for people to be involved in space anymore. It's much more international cooperation, commercial, uh, yes. or I should say commerce, um, that kind of thing where we almost... Um, by default now think of the future of space as international because there's so much commerce involved. And that mm -hmm. kind of mindset shift away from the, the nationalism first to uh, international partnerships, I think is very valuable. That, that kind of sounds like a very positive message of like, you know, sort of millennials worldwide are interested in seeing a way into the space community via, you know, the, the development of commercial space. Do you think the space industry has done a good job of sort of like, um, let's call it being welcoming? I mean, you know, if I had to strike a, you know, slightly more pessimist note, I mean, there's still... It still doesn't strike me at times as as very diverse. I did. Um, I was speaking at an event sometime last year, and it was um, you know sort of a, I think it was called Space for Women, and I did I ran some analyses, and it was sort of you know eighty five percent of C level executives and space companies are, are male and you know, things like that. Um, where, where do you see those things going? Yeah, that sounds about right. It's usually about 20, 25% of any general um, space organization or community is, is uh, female. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I see that growing. It's very slow growing. And you don't want to just think of it in terms of gender. There's also sure, geographic diversity, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, background and institutional diversity. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways to diversify. And it's slow going, that's for sure. But it is getting better. Um, you can see it in some of the ways that, for example, NASA has really chosen to embrace that kind of diversity and how it's chosen its latest um astronaut class and even ESA, you mentioned the ESA astronaut class and how they have decided they really want to ramp up applicants from, um, you know, that are from, that are women and also from the uh, disability community. Um, And so you Mm -hmm. can see where maybe there, there's other ways to um, do it that are better, but um, they're at least trying, right? They're at least trying to correct what has been um, institutionally very closed off. Um, You know, for example, um, you know, women could not be NASA astronauts for quite some time because they were not allowed to be test pilots. So you mm. you, you really shut off yeah. a whole half of the population there simply because of an institutional thought. And so correcting that within a, just a generation or two, I think is very, very valuable. Um, but there's a long way to go. You're absolutely correct. And I have very, very strong hopes for especially the Generation Z, which demands this. Um, the people I've interviewed, they, they pretty much demand change. And, and I think that's fantastic because that's how you change society is by demanding demanding it. No one's going to give up power voluntarily. You have to say, it's not right that this is so unbalanced and we mm-hmm. are going to demand change. And I think that's valuable in any sector, whether it's space or mm-hmm. elsewhere. Agreed. Um, speaking of that sort of next next generation, um, so because there's so many people now excited about space and it's it's in, it's every day, it's more in the news. What would be your sort of generic advice if there's any to you know, younger people who are fascinated by space, but then maybe they're not necessarily aero astro engineers. Um, you know, if they want to get into the space industry, what are some of the things they they should do some of the first anytime i speak to people i tell them you do not need to be a scientist or an astronaut or an engineer to work in space any background that you come from can be applied to space in one way or the other Mm -hmm. and i actually work with clients who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, you know, whether it's the medical field or business or finance, or there's yeah. so many different backgrounds that can be involved in space and not only involved, but help to change the space community for the better because the space community is so insular. It is, mm-hmm. is very much the run by engineers and mm-hmm. engineers are great at some things and not so great at other things like running businesses, for example. And so somebody who comes from another industry, somebody who comes from another discipline can really help to change the mindset and the knowledge for the better by bringing in different possibilities and different perspectives. And I think that as becomes more international and um, more interdimensional, interdisciplinary, um, you know, all these different ways that space is growing, I think that it'll become stronger and more mature and we'll really see a lot more growth and it won't be so vulnerable to um, you being cut off from funding sources from the government, for example, because as it grows stronger with all the different industries and all the different backgrounds and all the different countries involved, then it'll just become stronger and stronger and it'll benefit everybody. Yeah. Amen to that. I always say, like, you know, we really have to work hard, all of us, uh, to expand the space industry from this sort of, like, I always joke, you meet the same 1,000 to 2,000 people at the same, you know, at the big space conferences when we have to meet <laughs> the person. And I love all of those people, but we really need many, many more people. And like you said, from many different backgrounds. And exactly like you said, we we need everybody. I don't know how many space lawyers I know by now. It's it's, it's really impressive. Yes. And I even say artists, like, you know, this, this it may sound weird, but we need artists because there'll be so It's not weird. I just hired my an artist for my space company so not weird at all artists are needed communicators are needed lawyers yeah. and diplomats and all of that it's all needed policymakers everybody exactly great let's close on a couple of questions um one you have been going now i think you said with astrological for 
you know, five and a half years and obviously longer in the space sector. This has obviously been a very dynamic time uh, in the space sector. I mean, it seems almost like it's accelerating every day, the, the speed. What have been some of the, you know, what are some of the sort of developments and trends which you're really following, which you find most important and um, interesting? I love the international diplomacy aspect right now with mm. multiple countries um, either starting space agencies or growing their space agencies or um, in some way getting involved in the commercial space sector, even if they don't have a government space agency. I love that. Um, that's both within my business. I'm seeing prospective clients come to me like that. And also with things like the Artemis Accords and, and it's just a new, new space agency popping up pretty much every few months. Mm -hmm. I love that more and more countries are getting involved because space is inherently global, right? We are all one planet Earth. This is what yes. we are. We are a planet in space. Um, and so I love that more of the humanity is now getting more and more involved because I think that access to space, both space data and the space domain is very, very valuable for all of humanity. Um, and so also the way that space is integrated into modern society that we don't even realize, um, whether it's communications or mm -hmm. navigation or um, data and, and all the different ways that industry uses data, um, you know, agriculture or real estate or emergency response, how that's just kind of seamlessly behind the scenes being mm -hmm. integrated without mm -hmm. us even realizing it. I love that because it really goes to show how valuable satellites especially but really anything having to do with space space technology how that has really improved humanity which was one of my very first jobs there was was showing how the space environment can really benefit human life on earth um, and i also really love how um, we're now getting to a point where maybe we can have more and more people who are not chosen as government astronauts but are instead um, you know, just, I don't think I would ever be chosen by by NASA or a government agency to fly because I'm not picture perfect in terms of my health and, and all of that. But I think that um, as more and more diverse numbers of people fly, right? I mentioned um, Kaylee Arcano, who's flying despite the fact that she has bone, she had in, as a child bone cancer, or mm -hmm. Issa um, reaching out to the disability community mm -hmm. for a future astronaut. I, I love that. Making sure that we have more representation of people in space that represent all of humanity in terms of whether it's disabilities or, or geographic location or, or ethnicity, or it doesn't even matter. All of humanity, every representation of humanity needs to be up there in space. I think that's very valuable. And we're going to have that. We're going to have thousands of people flying in space in the coming decades. I truly believe that. It's not going to be um, limited anymore in the way it has been in the past, at least not as limited. It'll still be quite limited in terms of who can afford it. But um, at least it won't be quite as limited. And we're going to see how that turns out in terms of um, how it changes humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which brings us uh, very nicely full circle to where we started with the space tourism. And the other thing you mentioned, like more and more space agencies, that's almost like a potential precursor. Like who knows, one, someday in the future, maybe we'll have something like the Federation from Star Trek, which brings me to my typical closing <laughs> question, which is about science fiction and Laura, do you, do you like science fiction? And if yes, what kind of science fiction is your favorite? I love science fiction. You just mentioned Star Trek. I grew up with Star Trek, Next Generation, Voyager, Deep Space Nine. Those yes. I, my, my parents introduced me to that. Um, also reading science fiction. Um, not, not as many of the older things, more contemporary science fiction. Um, I don't have a ton of time to read these days, but where, when I can, I do. But also TV shows like The Expanse, mm -hmm. um, you know, movies like The Martian and some of the other ones that are popping up. Um, so do 
Dune has been my favorite series since I was a kid. I'm really looking forward to the new Dune movie. movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I love science fiction. It was one of those things that really captivated me as a kid. And I think that it does the same with other people around the world where they can take their imaginations and put it in other places of starships and other planets and, and really imagine how life could be like that and maybe someday create that reality. Exactly. That's very perfect words to close on. And Laura, thank you so much for being on. And who knows, I hope maybe maybe in 10 or 15 years or so, we can we can meet on the lunar surface. That would be very nice. But thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime in the future. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, And that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.